This message first aired on the radio on October 17, 2003. The scriptures for an hour is our plan today through enemy territory, and standing still to hear the Word of God is an important thing. So I trust that this time finds you prepared to hear the scriptures. We're in the dispensation of the law, and we have been, I think, now for six weeks at least. And here in BibleStudy.net, we've been doing an overview of the Scriptures, and thought we'd be done with that by now, but it's going to end up taking us probably the greater portion of a half a year to give a broad overview of the Scriptures. That's one hour a day for about uh, 25 weeks. It'll be 75 hours to give an overview of the Scriptures according to the dispensations. And the Bible is enjoyable that way. It's enjoyable when you have an organizational structure in which to put the Scriptures and realize that God has not only given us His Word, but He's given us an outline to His Word. That's why Paul told Timothy to retain an outline or hold fast the form of sound words, retain the outline of sound words. God has outlined time, according to the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only did the Lord Jesus Christ create time, but history is organized around him. And we uh, break that into different dispensations that God has had over time. And we're in the fifth one, which is the dispensation of law, which is the largest section of Scripture. And we're in the fourth piece of that dispensation. And that is with a piece that is called the captivity of Israel. And it's a piece that covers an immense territory of Scripture. In fact, we're looking at it through Second Kings right now, but it's a substantial portion of Oh, it's a little piece of Second Chronicles, but it's a substantial portion of the book of Isaiah. In fact, it's the first 39 chapters of Isaiah. The prophet really is his ministry to Judah concerning uh, the captivity that is going to come. And where we've left off in Second Kings, we've already got Israel under the captivity of the Assyrians. And uh, they got themselves into it and they're not going to get themselves out of it. In fact, very interestingly, when you read the book of Isaiah, one of the the heretics, those who don't believe in the Bible, those who would do destruction to the Bible, read the book of Isaiah and find that it takes such a tone after the 39th chapter that it really must be written by two different people. But it's not written by two different people. It's the work of the prophet Isaiah whose work was to consult and write about the word of the Lord during this troublesome time where Judah is struggling against going into captivity while Israel already is in captivity. And at the end, when Hezekiah fails and the captivity of Judah is also certain, then the book of Isaiah turns in chapter 40 to the hope of the promised coming of the Messiah because that's the only hope Israel has once in captivity. Well, it's really the only hope Israel ever has, but as the drama unfolds, you sort of hope that Hezekiah might be the answer to the problem. And we've hastened to get to Hezekiah, even though we're going slowly through this dispensation according to what we planned. We hastened and skipped over a bunch of evil kings, and we we haven't given fair treatment to many things. But one of the important things we didn't give main treatment to is the decadence that Israel fell into before it teamed up. Israel teamed up with the Syrians, the Syrians against Judah, which led to Judah bringing on the Assyrians and Israel's captivity thereby. 
And so when they really tried to take the throne by military force, the throne of Israel, and depose the descendants of David, this is when God sent Israel into captivity. But their decadence prior to that is so intense and so immense. We actually, we just passed over that in our discussions here. We forsook, for example, the discussion of how it was that Israel went into actual cannibalism in their distress and other evil things, and we just didn't treat in any detail each evil king. Well, if we ever go through these books in that kind of detail, then we can get into that. But we move along, and we're trying to demonstrate the last hope of Israel, who is Hezekiah, King Hezekiah. And so we left off talking about how the Assyrians came into Israel, and the Assyrians also came into Samaria, And because Samaria holds kind of a special place of infamy in Israel, and therefore a special place of grace also, we're going to discuss briefly what happened and how Samaria came to be known so awfully during the time of the Lord. And you'd think it was enough that Ahab made his throne there, but not for Israel, that wasn't enough. Uh, It had to actually get worse than that. So Ahab and Jezebel reigned out of Samaria, Maybe you think that was bad enough, but that isn't bad enough. In fact, when the Assyrians came in to Israel, they also came in to, they went further. They started out taking the king captive, but they came along and invaded Samaria even more than that. Once the king was uh, under captivity, they did quite a thing, and and we want to just read about that. So we're going to look at 2 Kings And we'll look briefly at the 17th chapter where we have, in chapter 16 and 17 of 2 Kings, we have an excellent summary of the moral failure of Israel. And I'll just point out before I get a little further along that God evaluates peoples on the earth morally. Morally. Uh, We like to evaluate things technically. We like to evaluate nations on a technical basis. When I was in school, and I I went to University of Nebraska at Omaha, And when I was there, despite the fact that I went to the university, I also got an education. Now, most of what university life was, and I was there in the early 70s and middle 70s, most of what university life is about is really it's mostly about sex and sex and inebriance. Sex and inebriance is mostly what it was about and mostly what it is about. Now, some of that's just normal. There is a a curiosity about the opposite sex that rises up at that age that needs to be very, we need to be very cautious about as parents, for example, and grandparents. Uh, We need to be both understanding and very cautious about it. But the last thing really you should do is turn your sons and daughters over to the university professors that dominate and predominate in academia. And uh, I know because I had very close association with many university professors. Now, some of those I have fond affection for. It's not a hundred, it's not, uh, uh, even some of the guys who were evil, I have uh, affections for these fellas, because they became, I won't say friends, but they became older brothers to me that I really never wanted. But in so doing, I also took economics, and part of my economic study was international economics. In fact, one of the best things I studied was economic development in nations. I did it quite by accident. I just did it because I was interested. I studied it some and read about it. 
And I find that we evaluate nation, and then I've had a decade of experience uh, with a developing nation uh, trying to sustain uh, an investment that's in Kenya, East Africa. And that's been quite an experience for the last decade to see what it takes to establish something and then how quickly wicked men will just come in and steal it. But that's another story another time. But men, men evaluate nations technically. And uh, the technical evaluation of a nation can be complex. You uh, look at their natural resources. You look at the unification of the people. You look at their language, whether they're all of one language or not. It's very important. You look at the industriousness of the people, the heritage that they have. You look at their leadership skill. You look at their natural resources. You look at their geography, their trading partners, some of their natural trade advantages, such as uh, warm water seaports and many other things, technically. And uh, you can get fascinated with that. But, you know, here's the interesting thing. God doesn't do that at all. God doesn't do that at all. If you looked at Israel that way, in a mere technical way, of course it has great geographical advantages because it's the heart of the whole earth. And, in fact, if uh, one was to subscribe to the Rimland theory or the Mackinder thesis, uh, you couldn't be in a better spot than Israel uh, very well. But whatever whatever those things may be, God looks morally at nations. I don't care to go into some boring lecture that I would have slept through myself. But God looks morally at nations. And he looks at the leadership of a nation. He judges the people according to the leadership, and he gives the leadership according to the way the people are. That's what we see in the Scripture. Why complain about the leaders that we have? There is no reason for you to do that. There is no scriptural warrant for you to sit around and complain about the leaders we have. God has given us the leaders we deserve. And uh, a child of God is to pray for that leader. And if you start getting experience near the leader, whether it's your city or whether it's your state, I've had the privilege in my life to become quite close to the leaders of our city, for example. There are mayors of our city that I've been close to. In fact, I grew up with one of them. He was like my uncle. Uh, He wasn't my uncle. He was like my uncle and very close to a former mayor of our city and others. And you get close to these people, you find out, really, the Scripture's true. We war against wicked spirits. We don't war against flesh and blood. And there's no sense blaspheming the leaders, really. They make their errors. They're obvious. You might have to say so, but there's no sense blaspheming them. You think that they're morally worse than you? They're probably not. In fact, our leaders are still probably, you know, morally valued in the big hump of the bell. And when you look at the nation of Israel here, you see that the children of Israel are busy doing their evils off in their corners all along the time that the king is featured in his evil. So the captivity comes in, the Assyrians come in to Israel in Second Kings here, and that is the judgment that God brings. God sends them into captivity. And we're going to see during the days of Hezekiah that it had nothing to do with military might. You wait and see how it is that God destroys the Assyrians during the time of King Hezekiah. It has nothing to do with military might. You remember Solomon is the one who began to focus on women, wealth, and weapons. We have a fascination with weapons today. We think our weapons will keep us safe or our weapons will keep us strong. But that's totally false. It was Alexis de Tocqueville that said America is great because America is good. You can't discover the secret of America till you go to their churches. Well, today you want to discover the secret of America's decline. I think the same thing is the case. 
I mean, I'm okay, I'm not one to invite the Frenchman over to look, but if one did, if a de Tocqueville came over today, he'd say America's going to go down the drain because I've revisited those churches. And down the tubes they're going. Well, we'll look here at what happened to Israel and how it is that Samaria got to become what it is. We're looking here at Second Kings 17, and it says that the king of Assyria commanded it, saying, Carry thither one of the priests whom you brought from hence, and let them go and dwell there. Let him teach the manner of God of the land. So now what they did was they took of the priests, the least of them, they took, well, you know, because we're at Omaha, I need to read something else. Let me just read this. So was Israel carried away out of their own land to Assyria unto this day. And the king of Assyria brought men from Babylon and from Kutha and from Ava and from Hamath and from Sepharim and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel. And they possessed Samaria and dwelt in the cities thereof. So this Assyrian king was uh, migrated a bunch of his own people in there to mix in with the children of Israel, to bust up the people. Of course, that's a strategic move. And so it was at the beginning of their dwelling that they feared not the Lord. Therefore the Lord sent lions among them, which slew some of them. So here's a group of people that didn't fear the Lord. And what God do? He sent lions into their cities. So uh, it used to be that there were a great number of lions in the land of Israel. Lions were the predators of Israel during the time of Samson, for example. During the time of the judges, lions were abounding in Israel. I understand mountain lions abounded in our part of the world, a country here, some time back, and they're showing back up. We uh, have friends who have been reporting sightings. Uh, this is over across the river in Iowa, not far who've been reporting lion sightings for quite some years now, a couple, three years. And, of course, now we have them in the city, busiest intersection of the city, center of the city, at a major park, Memorial Park. But God sent lions into Samaria, too. find this very interesting. He sent lions into the city, and they were slaying them into these cities of uh, Samaria. And, of course, lions are manhunters. These are not your kitty cats. Large lions slay big men, small lions, mountain lions slay a, well, a, a mountain lion can slay a man. So we have that here and something we can relate to. And maybe we can relate to the fact that uh, the Lord sent the lions in there when uh, the people were wicked. Maybe we can relate to that also. Wherefore, they spoke to the king of Assyria and said, The nations which thou hast removed and placed in the cities of Samaria, or the peoples, know not the manner of the God of the land, Therefore the God of the land has sent lions among them, and behold, they slay them, because they don't know the manner of the God of the land. Interesting, isn't it? This is what the Assyrians conclude. Say that these foreign peoples that you sent into Samaria, in the middle of the midst of Israel, they don't know the way of the God of that land, who is Jehovah, of course, but these people, being religious, and being uh, therefore superstitious, religious means superstitious, they said, so we need to teach him. So the king of Assyria commanded, saying, Get one of their priests, whom you brought from thence, and let them go and dwell there, and let him teach them the manner of the God of the land. Then one of the priests who they carried away from Samaria, which, of course, is not going to be a Levite who would find his way into Judah and be in Jerusalem, came and dwelt in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. So he taught them some strange mix of worship, Judaism. 
strange mix of Judaism, no doubt heathen practice. What do you get when you take Judaism and you mix it up with a little Christianity and you mix in a heavy dose of heathenism? Do you know what you get? You like take uh, three parts Judaism and four parts Christianity and two parts outright paganism. You put it in a blender, you turn on the blender, you run it for 90 seconds, out comes Roman Catholicism. That's what comes out. So they, these guys now are Catholics, pretty much. You, know, you say, oh, you're so cruel. No, I, the word means universal. they got some kind of universal religion. Anybody has a part. Nations, Jews, whatever. I'm a Catholic Christian in the sense that if you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're my brother and I accept you as such. But this now is a strange mix of Judaism and heathenism. They don't have Christianity to mix in. But that gets done later in time. King of Assyria commands them to have uh, some of the priests of the land go in there and teach them some stuff. So he does. Howbeit every nation made gods of their own. Verse 29, every nation made gods of their own and put them in the houses. That is, when it says nation here, it means every peoples. He took them, some from Babylon. He took some from Kutha, some from Avi, some from near around Babylon. He transported them in there. Took some of the Sepharvaim in there. These are the two sippers, one that worshipped a sun god and one that worshipped some other god. He put these different people in there to mix in, to weaken the people, of course. That's the purpose of mixing in these foreign peoples who have a different idea about how life should be. This is no melting pot. This is multiculturalism. So let that be a lesson to you. You read the scripture and you can find out why multiculturalism will weaken a nation. It's right here. And so they have their own gods. And here's what it says. Each nation had their own gods. They put them in the houses of the high places, which the Samaritans had made. Every nation in the cities wherein they dwelt. The men of Babylon made Succoth Benoth to their god. The men of Cuth made Nergal. The men of Hamath made Ashima. And the Avites made Nibhaz and Tartak, and the Sepharvites burnt their children in the fire to a Dremelech and, and an Amalek, the gods of the Sepharvim. Now, here you find five peoples setting up five different worships in Samaria. And so when, we, when the Lord comes to the woman at the well, and he says, you've had five husbands, and the one you have not is not your husband's. He's speaking typically. Of course, this was a literal woman that had five husbands and now had one that wasn't uh, her husband. Now she was just shacked up. But here is a typical teaching of what happened in Samaria. They had five different heathen religions that they mixed in with Judaism. This is what happened in their captivity. And the next help that they get is the Lord Jesus Christ stopping at that well. It goes downhill from here, downhill from here, until the Lord Jesus Christ comes at woman. She says, you've had five husbands. She, she says to him, we have a little theological difference, don't we? You, you say in Jerusalem is where we should worship, and then we say here and there. And he says, there's a time coming, and now is, that they that worship the Father must worship him in spirit and in truth. He says, you've had five husbands. The one you've got now is not your husband. She says, I perceive you're a prophet. And then he tells her that the worship has to be in spirit and truth. And, of course, this is typical of Samaria. They've got five husbands, and then they had their deal during the time of the Lord, that mixed-up thing. 
influenced heavily by the Greek culture, which comes into their captivity. And then then when they started building gymnasiums all over the place and the Greek system of things, including the horrible stuff of Antiochus Epiphanes, which made them to stink in Israel beyond the stench of others. So he said that you've had five husbands, and the one you got now, now you got a different false husband than, than these five here when you first started out in your captivity. But I'm here to tell you uh, the truth about God, which is the truth about God is not a something, it's a someone. The truth about God is the Lord Jesus Christ. So he, he didn't come just to tell her the truth, he came to be the truth. And so here it says, So they feared the Lord and made unto themselves of the lowest of them priests of the high places, which sacrificed for them in the houses of the high places. This is Second Kings 17, 33. They served the Lord and served their own gods after the manner of the nations whom they carried away from thence. So these people came in, these, these nations came in, set up their gods, and the children of Israel, who were in Samaria, went along with them and bought into their, into their evil ways, which just goes to show you that evil spreads and good does not. Evil spreads and good does not. And that's what happened. So the plan of the king of Assyria happened very, very well. They feared the Lord and served their own gods after the manner of the nations whom they carried away from thence. Unto this day do they the former manners, and they fear not the Lord, neither do they after their statutes or after their ordinances or after the law and commandment which the Lord commanded the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel. So here's where we're getting this wonderful summary information in Second Kings 17, written after the fact, of course. But the Lord, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt with great power and a stretched out arm, him you shall fear, and him you shall worship, and to him will you do sacrifice. And the statutes and the ordinances and the law and the commandment which he wrote you, you shall observe forever, and shall not fear other gods. And the covenant that I have made with you shall you not forget, neither shall you fear other gods, but the Lord your God shall you fear. He will deliver you out of the hand of all your enemies. Howbeit they did not hearken, but they did after their former matter, and therefore... Instead of God delivering them out of the hand of their enemies, God delivered them into the hands of their enemies. So these nations, it says, it tells us about these nations, feared the Lord. That is to say, they had a piece of the Jews' religion, but, and served their graven images, both the children and their children's children, as did their father, so they do, or these people, so they do unto this day. And so you had this bizarre mix called Samaria. And that's what we have today. We have today so many religious people with every kind of mixed-up, messy thing. Not just here. I, when I go to Africa, it's the same thing. They got a little of this, a little of that. They got a little heathenism, a little Christianity, a little Judaism, all mixed up, stirred up. And as I say, they put it in the blender, and out comes Romanism. Well, that, you say, well, why are you picking on Romanism? I'm not picking on Romanism. I'm identifying Romanism to this thing. This is how it happens. This is how it happens. And, uh, by the way, it's not just Romanism. There's plenty of other isms that I've come across that are just some bizarre mix of pagan stuff and Judaism and Christianity, Pentecostalism, lots of branches of it, substantially this kind of syncretistic, 
nonsense, mixing in that which is false with a little bit of truth. As the old preacher told me, a good lie needs a healthy dose of truth in it to stand up. Well, this horrible condition is a condition of the Samaritans. Israel now in captivity, their king in jail. It's all over for Israel. And so, really, as you're for, I mean, you read the Bible, you get, you, you get in favor of these people. I mean, it's like, uh, for example, if you're a football fan, let's just pretend, for example, you're a Nebraska Husker fan. Let's just assume that you might be. Well, you're cheering for these guys even when they're losing. You know, maybe it's a fourth quarter and it's been a touchdown, two touchdowns, three touchdowns, and even a four-touchdown score, you're still cheering for them. You're hoping some miraculous thing will happen, and along will come some, you know, freshman quarterback to throw five touchdown passes in three minutes. Or, you know, maybe even a fifth-year senior quarter or a fourth-year senior quarterback like John of Art, Michigan. But, nope, that's what you hope that Hezekiah is. Well, I hate to say that about Michigan, but, you know, you sort of are hoping at this time, that, well, we still got Judah, there's still a chance, maybe Hezekiah can snatch victory from the jaws of defeat. So along comes this guy, Hezekiah, and we have Second Kings 18 now. It came to pass in the third year of Hosea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, and he's in jail, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, the king of Judah, began to reign. And you might remember that Ahaz was a wicked guy. He wasn't as wicked as Ahab, but he was a wretched guy. So he didn't have a good father. Twenty-five years old was he when he began to reign, and he reigned twenty and nine years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah. Now, when the mother's named like this, and the guy is very different from his father, you wonder if it isn't due to his mother, Abi called Abby or Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah. You wonder if that's just not her. And he did that which is right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that David his father did. Wow, this is amazing. Out of Judah comes Hezekiah, and he does right. He removes the high praises, he breaks images, and he cuts down the groves, and he breaks in pieces. Here's an interesting passage of Second Kings 18.4. And he broke in pieces the brazen serpent that Moses had made. Maybe you remember the brass serpent Moses made. You can read about it in the book of Numbers. But it tells us in John 3, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so much the Son of Man be lifted up. That is to say, Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. It was an image of a serpent with a stake through it. And those who were bit by fiery seraphs or serpents looked at it and lived. Well, here that thing had survived all this time, and Hezekiah busted it up in pieces. For unto those days the children of Israel burnt incense to it. But Hezekiah called it Nehushtan, or a piece of brass, or some brass thing, because that's all it was. And, of course, this is what religious people do. This is what many of us do. We begin to organize ourselves around symbols and worship the symbols. Or we create symbols of things that God never gave us to. So these people had ignored the Ark of the Covenant and the House of God and all the other symbolic things that God gave them. They ignored those, misused them. We read about that, sold them, misused them, set up a false altar, and they, but they burned incense to the Nehushtan, piece of brass. Well, here's Hezekiah, and he's praised here. He's a iconoclast. 
He busts up the icons. I do not like icons, I'll tell you. I don't think that Christians ought to have icons. I don't like crosses. I don't like symbols that God didn't give us. I remember in a church that I was in, I left a, a, an icon. I didn't, I didn't do anything about it. I, I felt like a guest at the time. I had just been there a little while, and there was a cross on the wall. And it was a bit strange because there was a red light that was set up above that cross. There was a red light cast across the cross, and that was supposed to symbolize the blood of the cross. And I thought, well, I don't, I don't need something visible. Faith is not sight. But I don't want to be pushy or willful, so I'll just see if uh, you know teaching the Scriptures can maybe get this whole church to agree that this kind of thing has to stop. But it went too far when one morning the man leading the singing stood up and said, everybody face this cross here. We're going to sing and face this cross while you sing, and we're going to sing the old rugged cross. Well, that was it for me, and down came that cross. I just took it down, and you know, I thought, well, if, if I'm going to have a fight here about it, then we'll see what happens. So I was happy now to see here that Hezekiah, one of the things praiseworthy he did was he busted up the brass thing, the Nehushtan. More Christians ought to pay attention to these kind of things and realize that, there, that such things are important. He trusted in the Lord God of Israel, so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor any that were before him. Now, of course, this is excluding David. So it's as if Hezekiah now here shows the promise of being another David, a second David. And therefore, if he can be a second David, then the glory that Solomon had, which substantially was won by David, can be returned to Judah, despite the captivity of Israel. And maybe maybe somehow God will give deliverance to Israel, reunify the kingdom under Hezekiah, and they live happily ever after. That's what you hope for here. Well, it's not to be. It tells us the Lord was with him, and he prospered him wherever he went. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and served him not. Now, let me just say that you remember that Judah had teamed up because they were being attacked by the Syrians. Ahaz, the son of Jotham, who was wicked, teamed up with the Assyrians, and that's what led to Israel's captivity. This is Hezekiah's father. So Hezekiah's father Ahaz got in with the Assyrians in order to whack the Assyrians and Israel, and don't think that the the Assyrians were powerful. They could do for Judah militarily what they could not do, but you can be sure they extracted a price, and the result was the Assyrian was the king, and... Well, he he allowed Ahaz to be king in name only. He was a junior king or an assistant king. He was, was, as the Chinese would call the Assyrians, they were a hegemon. They They held a hegemony over Judah because of their treaty. You hook up with this big, powerful nation, pretty soon they're telling you what to do. And Hezekiah was a junior king. He was under the authority of the Assyrians. But in the seventh verse of 2 Kings 18... It says that the Lord was with Hezekiah. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and served him not. And he smote the Philistines even unto Gaza 
and the borders thereof, from the tower of the watchman to the defense city. And it came to pass in the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hosea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, the guy in jail, that Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it. And the end of the three years they took it, the sixth year of Hezekiah, which is the ninth year of Hosea, king of Israel. Samaria was taken. So this is now when the king of Assyria carried away Israel into Assyria and put them in different cities and, of course, then moved in others into their cities because Israel obeyed not the voice of the Lord but transgressed his covenant. So now Hezekiah has escaped. Hezekiah has escaped, and you just hope, can he maintain it? Well, when we come back, we're going to find out a little bit more about Hezekiah, and you're going to find out that there's no fourth quarter comeback here. So Hezekiah comes into the circumstance of being an enemy against the Assyrians, the very Assyrians that his father combined with. His father sowed to the wind and reaped the whirlwind. But he's not around for it. Hezekiah's around for it. And he did get away from them, but in the 14th year of King Hezekiah did Sennacherib, king of Assyria, come up against all the fenced cities of Judah and took them. So all of a sudden there's a military incursion, there's an attack by the Assyrians, and he takes Judah's fenced cities, their defended cities. And that's why it is, brothers, sisters, listener, Friends, you do poorly to trust in weapon defenses and the means of men. The only hope a nation has, the only hope a people, a family has, a city has, a county has, the only hope any of us have is in our Lord Jesus Christ. There's no other really, there's no other one to hope in. He's not merely the hope of Israel. He's the hope of the whole world. And the whole world lies in the power of the wicked one, and he intends good for no one. He is the arch enemy of all men. That's why it is so important for those of us who believe and understand the Word of God to keep in constant memory and be constantly mindful that our war is not against flesh and blood, but against wicked spirits in high places. So... Now he comes down and he takes all the fenced city of Judah, and Hezekiah sends to the king of Assyria to one of his chief ministers, and he sends to one of his main cities, and he tells him, I have offended, return from me, back your people off our territory, and whatever you put on me I'll bear. In other words, I'll pay you tribute, just back off. He has no hope to defeat him militarily, and he asks the king of Assyria to just tax him, and the king of Assyria appointed unto Hezekiah 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold tax he puts upon them. And Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in all the treasures of the king's house. And at that time did Hezekiah cut off the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the pillars which Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. Now, what this fellow did is he did not ask the Lord. This is Hezekiah. He is not David. 
he's not going to lead the fourth quarter comeback. Now, he's going to score a couple of touchdowns, uh, one or two, but he's not going to pull it through, and you can see why. It's because he does not turn to the Lord. And, of course, he has those around him telling him to do so. He's got Isaiah the prophet here that he could turn to for counsel and advice. But he moves this way, and the king of Assyria now sends his commander-in-chief and his political head and his chief of the captains and his mouthpiece uh, said in verse 17 of Second Kings, he sent the Tartan and the Rabsaris and the Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah with a great army against Jerusalem. And they went up and came to Jerusalem. And when they were come up, they came and stood by the conduit of the upper pool, which is in the highway of the Fuller's Field. So they're standing there very close, and they're standing there, which is the military access route. They're standing by the conduit of the upper pool, which is what Joab jumped upon and ran up to take Jerusalem from the Jebusites in the first place. So this is a genuine threat, and they're at the gates. These are the barbarians at the gates. And when they called to the king, there came out to them Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, which was over the household, and Shebna the scribe, and Joah, the son of Ashap, the recorder. So they didn't come out any military guys, but out came political representatives. And the Rabshakeh, who's the spokesman, said unto them, Speaking now to Hezekiah, thus saith the great king, the king of Assyria, What confidence is this wherein thou trustest? You say you have counsel and strength for war. Now whom do you trust, that you would rebel against me? Now behold, thou trustest upon the staff of the bruised reed, even upon Egypt. Even if a man leans on it, he'll go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, unto all that trust in him. So he says, look, you can turn to Egypt, our enemy, but there's no help for you there. Or you can say to me, we trust in the Lord our God. Isn't he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has taken away and has said to Judah in Jerusalem, you should worship before this altar in Jerusalem? Now this fellow is speaking to the people. And he's persuading them that there's no hope for them. And this is the lie of the enemy, by the way. This is the enemy's lie. There's no hope for you. Things are too far against you. You might as well just give in to my demands. This is the lie of your flesh also. Well, it doesn't matter anyway. Might as well just give in to my lust. I might as well just give in to my lust because it doesn't matter anyway. That's how it is that you go off into sin. So whether it's a nation or whether it's a family or whether it's a community or whether it's just you and your sins, this is how it works. And the Rabshakeh, this spokesman, it tells us in verse 28, he stood and cried with a loud voice in the Jews' own language and spake and said, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Don't let Hezekiah deceive you. He cannot deliver you. Neither let Hezekiah make you trust in Jehovah, saying, Jehovah will surely deliver us, and this city will not be delivered in the hand of the king of Assyria. Now the king of Assyria is boasting through his spokesman against God. This is not a prophet of God saying this. This is a wicked, wretched character saying this. Do not listen to Hezekiah, he says, for thus says the king of Assyria, 
make an agreement with me by president, come out to me, and then every man will have his own vine and everyone his fig tree, and you'll drink out of the waters of your own cistern. And I'll take you into a land like your own land, <laughs> a land of corn and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of oil and honey, that you may live and not die. So he promises to take them out of the land, into a land just like it. It'll be just like it, only a little different. Well, that's what captivity is. That's what bondage is, a promise that it'll be just like but not. Has any of the gods of the nation delivered at all his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? And so this guy terrorizes, terrorizes the people. And the people says, it says they held their peace and answered him not a word because the king's commandment which says don't say anything to him. Just let him rattle on. Then came Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, which was over the household, and Shebna the scribe, and Joah the son of Asaph, the recorder to Hezekiah, with their clothes torn, and they repeated to him the words of the Rabshakeh. Now when Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and went into the house of the Lord. First time we see that, should have done that before he chopped off the doors of the house of the Lord and handed them over to the Assyrian. That was just a waste. And Isaiah the prophet comes to him, and here's what it says. Isaiah said to them, Thus shall you say to your master. He's giving his answer to the political leaders of uh, the king, uh, Hezekiah. Thus saith the Lord, Be not afraid of the words which thou hast heard, and which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed. Behold, I will send a blast upon him, and he shall hear a rumor, and shall return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. So God promises here deliverance to Judah because Hezekiah turned to him, and God indeed delivers Judah. And you just think, now Judah's been delivered. It came to pass, it tells us, when that night, as the king of Assyria is going back toward his land, that the angel of the Lord went out and smote in the camp of the Assyrians a hundred and four score and five thousand, 185,000 men. And when they arose early in the evening, they were all dead corpses. Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went and returned. Well, there's a lot to be said about that. There's a whole lot to be said about that. It's a wonderful story, really. But the fact is, we're not getting to the good news of Hezekiah, but we're getting to the bad news of Hezekiah. He's not David. He's not the son of David. He's not the Lord Jesus Christ. Israel needs Christ. You need Christ. I need Christ. There's no other hope. Won't you come to Christ?